All right, y'all, I am back for another episode. And this is a solo episode. I wanna talk about today the three key components that I truly believe come with quality autism care, quality autism support, and what I believe that you deserve as a family. Now, I will say you might, in listening to this episode, have to piecemeal some of this and advocate for some of it. It is one of the things that inspired me to start my own private practice and design services that I really felt like serve families. Being aware of these components are going to help you to know what to advocate for. And so if you've wondered, is my child getting the best high quality care? Should I be doing more? Use this episode as a check-in to ask yourself, okay, what does my child need? And also, and this is the part that's often forgotten, is what does my family need? Because autism doesn't just affect your child's life, it affects your entire family. I'm Dr. Tay, a licensed child psychologist and parental mindset coach specializing in autism. I have supported hundreds of autistic children and their families and have been in the autism field for over a decade. I'm the host of Evolve, the podcast where we have real conversations that are designed for autism parents just like you. Each week, we will discuss topics that directly impact your life, from providing psychoeducation about autism and neurodiversity to talking about your personal growth, well-being, and evolution as a parent. We dive into it all. Just keep in mind, nothing shared on this podcast is clinical advice, and you should consult with a medical or mental health provider if you need support. Now, let's get to talking about quality autism care. So I have three things that I really, really believe are essential. And so right at the start of the episode, I'll kick those off, but then we're gonna dive deeper together because I wanna explain what each of these components mean. The first one is making sure that your child's therapy is both evidence-based and neurodiversity affirming. So that is number one, and I'm gonna wrap that all in. So basically making sure that your child is getting the highest quality of care. Number two is making sure that you have a space to fully be able to process everything, whether you're in the early stages of diagnosis or autism has been in your world for a while, things are going to pop up. Emotions are going to pop up because you are human and those negative emotions, even that pop up, that doesn't mean that you are a bad parent, that you're selfish for focusing on those. I want you to remember that you're human first and in order to take the best care of yourself and your family, you have to take care of you first and process through those emotions. So that's number two is a space for you. And number three is I want you to build a team that views you as part of that team, that sees your expertise, which is being the expert of your child, and that is going to value your opinions as well as integrate you into care. Meaning, yes, You're gonna get so much from the providers you work with, but are they teaching you how to do those things outside of session? I talk about that a lot here and we're gonna dive into it a little bit more. So let's start off with the first one. What do I mean by evidence-based care and neurodiversity affirming care? They're separate things. And here's the thing to know is that sometimes they can kind of conflict with each other. One of the things that I've seen is that the field is slowly evolving. And I kind of laugh and chuckle because it's crazy how slow it is. But the idea of neurodiversity has been around for a couple years and 
Y'all, I did an episode where I shared my story of learning about neurodiversity affirming care and really listening to the autistic voices and that it took me a little bit to get on board myself because that wasn't how I was trained. And so I had to shift my mindset around that. And so you're going to come across a lot of providers that maybe either don't understand neurodiversity affirming care yet or that just haven't heard about it. Ideally, you're finding providers that are neurodiversity affirming. I'll talk about what that is in a second. And then if they haven't, that they're willing to learn, right? That's the key. Are they willing to learn even if they haven't been fully immersed in this new wave movement, which was so necessary? You're gonna find providers that are resistant to it, that are only gonna think about autism in terms of the medical model, and those probably aren't your people. And I'll talk about why. So let's dive into what do I mean by neurodiversity affirming care? What this means is there is a shift away from the medical model's definition of autism. So the way we diagnose autism based on the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, fifth edition, is based on deficits. We're saying relative to neurotypical kids or neurotypical peers, what deficits are there? And that's necessary for a diagnosis. But I talk with parents, and I think this is so important. Once you get that diagnosis, we want to really shift to understanding your child more holistically. And what I mean by that is seeing their strengths. Autism absolutely comes with strengths. Neurodiversity is this idea that the brain thinks differently and different doesn't mean it's bad. And so we don't wanna be qualifying everything as a deficit. I have a perfect example of this. So one of the diagnostic criteria is focused on what we call excessive or unusual interests. That's kind of how it's described in the DSM-5. And what this means is that a kid is either more intensely interested in something than their neurotypical peers, or they have interests that their neurotypical peers don't typically have at that age. So an example of this is loving letters and numbers. And I worked with kids that are hyperlexic, meaning this idea of reading and understanding letters comes so easily to them and they're reading at age three and it's incredible. And interestingly, we consider that a deficit because it's deviating from neurotypical standards, but it's not a deficit. I need to call it a deficit in order to justify a diagnosis of autism. But once we have that diagnosis, we're going to think about, okay, how do we play to this? How do we really help to support this interest? One of the things in working with young kids through an early intervention model, we're actually gonna follow their lead. So how can we use an interest in letters and numbers in order to support the child? Also, it's a way for us to enter their world. They're interested in it rather than being like, that's quote unquote atypical. How do we enter their world? And so a neurodiversity affirming therapist or provider is going to understand this concept that they're not going to try to only see all of your kids behaviors as deficits or things that need to be fixed or cured, which historically that is how the field thought. But we've a thousand percent moved away from this. So neurodiversity affirming care is going to look like we are not trying to take away stimming behaviors because we know that stimming is very regulatory in nature. For example, we are not forcing kids to make eye contact with us. There are so many other ways of communication, which also leads me to this idea. We're not only working on 
verbal production or verbal communication. If a child is signing more, we want to reinforce that. We want to enter their world. We want to understand what they're doing versus insisting that they say the word more or that they say a word approximation of more like mama, mama, where it's clear they don't mean mama, but they need more. And so we have to shift our expectations and understand that we're not trying to fix and cure. We're just trying to provide the highest quality of care and the best supports. For example, if the child is signing more and you're missing that, how can we attend to that? So then it makes it more likely they're gonna do it in the future. And then how do we loop in all their teachers that, this is how my son indicates that he wants more of something. Notice this. And so that's the idea of neurodiversity affirming care. It's helping you to understand your child. It's helping your child have a better quality of life. And that's what we're focused on. But we're not trying to erase the autism. We're not trying to fix anything. We simply are trying to provide the best supports for your child to be able to learn, thrive, and grow. And so you want a therapist like that. And so what I meant in the beginning of this is this is ever evolving. And I think social media has been wonderful in this regard. So a lot of times I go to social media, I will go to autistic adults accounts, learn from them. I also am listening to other neurodiversity affirming therapists and I've learned so, so much. So I think we're moving in that direction, but you might come across a provider who doesn't know this. And so maybe you're having to do a little bit of education with them of like, oh, my child's stimming, how are you going to react to that? And if they're like, well, we're going to redirect and reduce the stims, it's like, nope, that might not be the right provider for you. And I want you to listen to your parent gut in this one. It's not a one size fits all thing. Like if you feel good about what the therapist is doing or what your provider is doing, that's a good indicator. Even if they're not quote unquote using all the right lingo, they're not saying I'm neurodiversity affirming, but having that conversation is really gonna help you get a sense of, are they gonna be a good fit for your family? And I really, really believe that as a field, we need to shift to this neurodiversity lens that Again, brains think differently and we're not trying to conform to standards. We don't want your autistic child who loves letters and numbers to stop loving letters and numbers or your autistic child who maybe has beautiful artistic skills. We want to allow that to grow, allow that to be an outlet for them. And so you can do some education. You might even start to share podcasts with them of like, hey, would you mind listening to this so we can chat about it? And here's the thing. Yes, therapists are busy. Yes, providers are busy. And it's going to benefit so many of their patients, especially if they're working in the autism community, to take the time to listen to that. One piece of this is maybe it's ever evolving. You're having conversations and understanding yourself, educating yourself why neurodiversity affirming care is important, and at the same time, listening to your parent gut. The other piece of high quality care in my mind is what we call evidence-based therapy or EBTs, meaning we know that there's an evidence base behind it. We know that it works. The way that I was trained in graduate school through my PhD is yes, we need evidence-based treatments. That's what we're going to always. That's the gold standard. And yes, I still do believe that. And there's a big and to this in a couple ways. One, 
there's not always a lot of validation of different therapeutic approaches in autistic individuals. A lot of times in research, and this is how something gets an evidence base is through research. So a lot of times what happens is autistic individuals are excluded from that research. So we have a bias right there that makes it really difficult. It's hard sometimes to find evidence-based treatment that was validated in autism populations. At that point, as a provider, I'm using what I call evidence-based principles things that we know work, and I might have to make tweaks for it. An example of this is if I'm working with a verbal school-age child and say I am working on something like anxiety, a lot of times we're going to do what's called cognitive behavioral therapy. What's really cool is CBT has been studied in autistic youth. There's lots of different research studies on it that have helped us to understand what modifications are needed. But historically, we might start to introduce a lot of cognitive restructuring, identifying the thought, shifting the thought. And as a clinician, I'm making a judgment call and testing things out of like, is that the best thing to focus on? Or should we just jump to the behavioral piece primarily and focus on exposures? There's some give and take and ebb and flow in all of this, but I'm basing it off of principles. And with my training, I'm able to use my clinical judgment. And the providers you're working with likely are doing this too, especially if they've been trained in evidence-based therapy. The other kind of caveat of this, though, I'm going to say is in my mind has been open the more that I immerse myself into different modalities and explore that sometimes research hasn't caught up yet. What's so fascinating, there was a research study that talked about, and I hope I'm quoting it right, and I don't even know what study it is to cite it. Maybe I'll have to do some behind the scenes work so I have this for the future. But basically, there's a study that shows by the time a research study is funded, and then you go through the study, which usually funding cycles are five years long. So meaning it's going to take five years to design the study, to collect all the data, to analyze all the data, and then get it published. That maybe is going to take five years. But what's crazy is from the time of initial study conception and it getting funded, it takes 17 years to get into clinical practice. And so we're seeing this research to practice gap right now where, yes, evidence-based therapies are amazing, but there's things that we know clinically that we've been experimenting with that work and that maybe either haven't been studied yet or haven't fully made its way into clinical practice. Some of it is the, the nuances of funding in the research world. Funding sources are only interested in certain research questions. And so interesting behavioral therapies have been something that recently haven't been getting funded as much. And so that's good. We're studying other types of methodology. For example, things that are being funded a lot is really understanding what we call the mechanism of change, basically like how symptoms are changing in response to treatment. Also pharmacological studies, as well as neurofeedback, things like that, where looking, can we actually shift the neuroplasticity? Important research. And sometimes that doesn't make its way into clinical practice in an applicable way. So that was long-winded, but the whole point in this is I want you to know that there are providers out there that are doing evidence-based therapy. And there's a caveat with this, be aware of that. and. Those providers that are trained in evidence-based therapy are going to know how to adjust and they're going to be able to provide the most effective approaches for your child. And I think that's what's important. We shouldn't be winging therapy. There is a science, so to speak, behind the methodology that you as a parent might not fully realize. 
And a lot of times we're thinking session to session. So we're going to tell you to do something knowing that the next session is going to build on it. And that is where it's more systematic and we can take research to know that this approach works and that we're not completely winging it. So to recap this first point, and I think this will be the longest one, is we want therapists that are either neurodiversity affirming or that are willing to learn. And we also want therapists, and I really should say providers generally. I really believe pediatricians should be getting on board with this, which is something, I'm gonna get off on a tangent real quick here. Something that I've been reflecting a lot on is wow, we need to provide better education to pediatricians because the information they're getting about autism, it's tiny, it's not enough. And they're often the first go-to point. So let me back up. Neurodiversity affirming providers or those that are willing to listen to you, willing to learn, as well as those that use evidence-based approaches to inform the work that they're doing and are also able to be flexible in the same way, but that there's a systematic strategy. We don't want you to go into a session and feel like your therapist or the provider you're working with is always winging it because likely your child isn't going to get better because what we know is the secret ingredient to improvement. I should say change because it's not always in the direction of improvement. It could be in the direction of reduction. But in order to see change, we need consistency. Something like therapy and whether that's working with someone like me as a psychologist, whether that's speech therapy, occupational therapy, it's not a quick fix. It's going to take time. It's going to take consistency. And I'll get back to this with point number three, the work you do outside a session is the most important of anything, even more than what happens inside a session. And you still have to have a strategy in place. So that was point number one. Point number two, we are failing y'all as parents. Our field is failing in supporting you. There's no question about this. I have a lot of conversations with parents and one of two things really pop up is one, they don't really feel like they have a space to ask questions. Maybe they have a whole provider team. There's a speech therapist. There's an occupational therapist. There could even be a psychologist on board. There could be the, the special education teacher. There could be a pediatrician. There could be a neurologist. And all of these appointments, it's very quick and they're very hyper-focused on the child. So one, you might not even have space to ask questions about your child, which to me is problematic. You should be able to ask any and all questions, which relates to point number three. And even if you get those questions answered for yourself, what about a space for you to be able to process all of this? So in diagnostic feedback, one of the things I talk with parents right in that moment of I give the diagnosis and I say, how are you feeling right now? We take a pause. Yeah, we'll get to the recommendations, but how are you doing? Because that is an indicator to me of how much information that parent is going to take in. If the parent is in freeze mode, I know to keep my recommendations really simple, and I know that I'm going to be following up with them in multiple different ways, with a written report, with a follow-up phone call, all of that. Or are they the one that's worried and wants all their questions answered? okay, then we're gonna spend more time answering those questions. So that's a check-in point. There's a lot of emotions that come in those days and weeks and months and even years following the autism diagnosis. There's a lot of emotion coming into it. And a lot of times parents don't think about the emotion that comes after. So I like to prime them. Listen, you're likely to feel sadness. You're likely to feel anger. You're likely to feel symptoms of grief. You're likely to be in denial. You're likely to be pissed off. Whatever it is, 
all of these things are normal. You're likely to have a lot of shame and guilt of, did I do this soon enough? Or did I do something? These are super, super common. And these feelings don't often go away. Maybe the initial shock or the initial intensity of the emotions when you receive the diagnosis temper down. But shame and guilt is something that I talk with parents about all the time because I realize we're not giving space for families to be able to process this. And if you guys haven't heard my personal story, my brother was diagnosed at 23 months of age with autism. I was 12 at the time. My parents didn't have the support. And then in turn, I didn't have the support. If I'm being honest right now, this is something I'm processing through as a 33-year-old adult right now in my own therapy. I say this very clearly in the episode, my parents didn't do anything wrong. They weren't supported. So how would they know how to support me through this journey? So I really think overall, we are failing families. We are failing parents. And maybe that sounds harsh. And I hope if you're listening to me right now and you're like, no, Taylor, you're wrong. I am so glad I want to be wrong on this topic. Maybe you have an amazing support system. And what I'm going to share with you is that the majority of parents listening to this feel like they don't have a place to feel seen, heard, and supported. It's where we are failing. And so I developed my services with this in mind. This is why I developed the whole family approach is yes, we're going to do evidence-based treatment for your child. And we're also going to talk about your emotions, your feelings, what you're processing through, what you're worrying about, what questions you have, all of that. You're going to get support for yourself. And then we're going to take it a step further and talk about how do you support the other children in your family? How do we support maybe extended family? It becomes an important conversation and it starts with you feeling supported first. So what do you do if you're like, Taylor, I'm listening to this and yeah, I'm one of the people that are being failed. What can you do about this? So first off, yes, this is a little self plug. Contact me. Maybe I can be a good fit for you in being able to provide this type of support. I am by no means in the service of stealing families from other therapists, but maybe if you're feeling like you're not getting this, that could be one option. Okay, but I want to talk about that's not an option. Let's put that off the table. What do you do? Because my goal of this podcast is to give you free resources. So number one, I want you to talk with your child's team about this. Maybe there's therapists you connect with more and say, one of the things that I'm noticing is I don't always have space to ask questions. I don't have space to be able to know if what I'm experiencing is normal. Would that be something we could talk about? And they'll be really honest with you. They might say, no, the way that I have to build this, I'm not able to, or I'm so sorry, these appointments are so short. I don't feel like there's time and space for that, but they're gonna have a network. And so then the next question, if they say no, is who do you know that would be good for this? And maybe you're getting referred to, support groups. Maybe you're getting your own therapist. And when you're interviewing therapists for yourself saying, hey, I have an autistic child. I don't expect you to know everything about autism, but is this something that we can process in session? Because I notice that I need a space. I need an outlet to be able to get it out of my brain and into the world so that it doesn't stay stuck in my brain. So support groups, hiring your own therapist, 
I also know that there are some amazing, amazing Instagram accounts. The more that I have dug in, I'm realizing that parents are creating their own communities. I think that's awesome. And then this is the last one is my free Facebook community. That's what it's designed for is for you to be able to ask questions, get support. I stream the podcast live and every week I do a free Q&A in there. So you can always come and ask questions. My goal is to get it up and going. So if you're in there right now, I do have plans to kind of keep ramping it up as things scale because my Facebook community means so much to me. Y'all are trusting me and I want to make sure that I'm serving you. So those are some options for you to be able to get the support if your child's therapy team isn't naturally folding this in. I want you to know that this is pretty rare, which again is one of the reasons I felt so passionate about developing it. And I also want you to hear it loud and clear that everything you're feeling right now is so valid, it's so real, and it's normal. What you're going through, trust me, I've heard from hundreds of parents of autistic children. They're going through the same thing. And it does go in stages and waves. So you might talk to one parent and they're like, no, I'm not experiencing that. And I bet if you really got deep in the conversation, they would say, yeah, in the past, I, I felt like that. Or maybe a couple of weeks later, something hits them and all of a sudden they're feeling like that. So you are not alone in this. The last one is you need to be part of your child's team. This is so, so critical. And so I kind of sandwiched the child things on the end, but I want you to remember that you and what you're experiencing is important. Again, I've worked with parents for so long. I know that your top priority is your child and you're like, okay, great. I know I need to support myself. Sometimes that's easier said than done. Sometimes it's really hard and I don't have the capacity for that. And that you at least want to know that your child is getting the best level of care. I started to touch on this. You need to have a space to be able to ask questions. So what I'm gonna encourage you is even if you feel like this space isn't provided for you to be able to ask questions about your own experiences and all of that, if you have questions about your child's therapy, I want you to ask no matter what, even if that means the therapist is like, good to see you, I'll see you next week. Then maybe you walk into the next session and say, listen, it's really important that I know what to work on at home. That's number one as part of you being a valued team member is you need to know what these therapists are working on so that you can go and implement these things at home. Change does not happen in the 30 to 60 minute therapy window that you have. Change happens in the day-to-day. -day. And so a lot of times too, there's ways to integrate it naturalistically into your everyday routines. It doesn't have to be where you stop and you say, this is therapy practice time. It can be embedded. And so if you have a young child with autism, I highly, highly recommend getting the book and early start for your young child with autism. So even if your provider team isn't educating you on everything they're working on, you have an understanding of what you can be working on. And I'm going to really encourage you to advocate and say, I need this space to be able to ask questions. I know it's hard. You don't want to rock the boat. You don't want to disrespect the therapist's time. It's hard. You feel like, oh, maybe I shouldn't be asking questions because they aren't providing this space. I promise you, if you have a good therapist, they want to be able to provide the space. They just might have a really high caseload. And unfortunately, if I'm being real, the reality is that there's high burnout in the medical field. And I could go on a tangent about this, but all I will say is we need to make some system-wide changes so this reduces. And right now, what you can do is advocate, speak up, 
talk to your child's therapist about being like, it's really important to me. My child isn't just working on their speech and their language for one hour a week. What can I do at home? Or their sensory needs. You're doing a great job of supporting them. I can see how some of these things are working, but I want to understand why you're doing this. So that way, when new situations pop up, I can apply it. So with this point, you should be part of your child's team. That's one way. The other way that I mean that though, is you should be respected. You should be viewed as an expert. And because no one, I mean no one, I don't care what degree they have, how long they've been in the field, no one is more of an expert on your child than you are, okay? Hear that again, I do not care. I say this all the time, maybe you've heard it on the podcast before. It's something I literally say to families. I may be an expert on autism and early child development and mental health. I'm not the expert on your child, you are. So let's collaborate together to figure out what's going to be best. When I'm working with a family, I, I'm bringing in strategies, but I'm constantly pausing and saying, how do you think this will work for your family? What are your thoughts about this? Hey, go try this out. See, see what it's like. I want you to come back to me and tell me. And if they're like, Taylor, this isn't working. I'm like, okay, let's go back to the drawing board. Let's figure this out. And that's how you really should be treated. And so this one isn't unique to my practice. I really believe you can find a provider team that is going to be supportive, that's going to view you as an expert. What's really, really cool, if you go listen to most of the podcast episodes that I've recorded so far, every guest I've brought on has had the same message. And actually next week, I bring on a physical therapist. She said the same thing. So just know this isn't unique to me. You can find providers that are like this. Sometimes it's gonna take trial and error to find the right providers, to find the right team. And I'm talking a lot about the medical system right now, but this is true in the school system as well. All right, y'all. So just a recap of what we talked about is number one, we want to find therapists that are evidence-based informed. They're using practices that we know work and that are neurodiversity affirming, okay? Those are important. Number two, a space for you to be able to ask questions, process. You supporting yourself in this journey is so important because so many things are going to pop up. And number three is that you are viewed as part of your child's team of providers, that you are valued just as much as any quote unquote expert on that team because you are the expert of your child and you should be regarded in that way. You also then should be integrated into their care and really understanding what you can continue to work on at home. So you can find providers like this, I promise you. Like I said, you may have to piecemeal. If you're listening to this and you're like, Dr. Tay, I really like what you're talking about. I feel really in alignment with that. Let's chat. You can schedule a free consult call with me. We'll chat through how my practice works and if I might be a good fit for you. And one of the things is, again, I use what's called my whole family approach. This is methodology I developed, which actually speaking, I'm going to get on a quick tangent, which y'all know by now probably are my favorite things. I developed the whole family approach myself. What I did to develop this is I am pulling evidence-based principles, evidence-based approaches, and I'm integrating it all together to have this more family-based approach. So I'm using evidence-based principles for your child in the sessions that we're doing together. And then I'm also pulling in different components of what is going to support you best. And I'm looking to the research. This is an example of piecemealing things in order to be able 
to serve you best. And so this is where I'm saying this rigid thinking about evidence-based treatment, and that's the only way. I think we need some flexibility, especially being in the autism field, and especially taking into account that autism, again, doesn't just affect your child, it affects the whole family. And we don't have a lot of evidence-based practices that are supporting you as the parent or your other children as siblings. So it is a piecemeal approach. But what's so cool is I've been in this field for over a decade. I've been on the research side and then done tons of clinical work. I've worked with different people with different approaches. I've been able to pull it together seamlessly to provide you and your family the best support. So if you want to learn more about my services, just email me at admin at drtaylorday.com. It's linked in the show notes and we can set up a free consult call and chat if I might be a good fit for you or not. And if I can't help you, I promise I will point you towards resources that could be a good fit. All right, y'all, that is a wrap for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. And I just want to encourage you that these three components, I believe that you deserve them. So don't be afraid to advocate for them. Don't be afraid to piece them together to get the support that your family needs. If you find yourself listening to these episodes and finding value, come join the Evolve Facebook group. Each week I record podcast episodes live in that community and host a Q&A after each episode. You get access to engage with me, plus you can connect with other like-minded autism parents. It is a community designed for you to feel seen, heard, and supported as a parent of an autistic child and introduces you to my whole family approach. The group is linked in the show notes. I will be back next week with another real conversation about all things autism and your family life. Be sure to hit the plus or follow button in the podcast platform that you are listening to right now. This will notify you when the next episode is live. Catch you all later.